Welcome everybody to a quality podcast. We are blessed to have Jonathan Andell on the show today. Jonathan is an original Lean Six Sigma black belt with Motorola, a continuous improvement lean and Six Sigma consultant, uh, really preeminent in his field. And we are just thrilled to have him on the show today to talk about a topic that's near and dear to our hearts. So Jonathan, why don't we start out, tell us a little bit about yourself, what you're up to these days. Hey, I'm an engineering nerd by uh, background, and uh, I've been in the world of Lean Six Sigma for uh, more, more decades than I really want to admit in public these days. Um, I'm getting to the point where, you know, Boy Scouts are offering to help me cross the road, so it's one of those issues. But uh, but I've, I've enjoyed it. I, you know, I, I found my calling when I got exposed to what Motorola was calling Lean, uh, was calling Lean Six Sigma at the time. And uh, then people started handing me books by this guy named Shingo, which I thought was just part of Six Sigma. Here I came later on, found out, hey, Lean is something sort of kind of different, but complimentary. And so I've been doing it all over the place in manufacturing, in healthcare, uh, in all kinds of organizations and having a, a ball doing it and hopefully making a few differences here and there. Uh, these days, I'm currently on a contract with a manufacturer. They make uh, aerospace components and I'm trying to help them with a uh, flow and delivery problem with, with a specific product line. Good deal. Le the Lean Six Sigma Pontificator at Large. I love that introduction, by the way. Thank you. I think it's a an apt description of uh, when you get me started. And we have kind of a juicy episode, I think, today. So all of us um, have a passion for leadership and have experienced good leadership and better leadership and understand kind of the gap between all the literature out there on organizational behavior, human psychology, leadership, and then what's actually practiced and what we experience. And so we are going to kind of discuss leaders that um, impose their decision-making down on the organization. Tell me more about that, John. You know, I think a lot of organizations, even those that have bought into the philosophy and the benefits of lean, uh, you know, their leaders have habits they've inculcated sometimes over decades, and it's hard for them to learn how to do things a new way. And so they may fully believe in their uh, hearts and minds that uh, the, the EMI concept of everyone, everywhere, every day is a great thing, but uh, when, when the day gets going, uh, they're, they're giving orders and issuing commands and, and just kind of operating the way they're used to. Um, if you don't mind a weird analogy, once upon a time, I, was, uh, I thought I could play a little bit of golf and uh, I started taking lessons and the pro showed me a, a somewhat different approach to the swing. And he warned me very correctly that for the next couple of weeks, I won't be able to hit the ball well using my old swing or my new swing because the transition was just going to be a, a difficult thing. 
And, and I think that analogy plays out with a lot of leaders who want to be more empowering, but maybe they don't know how. We have this observation that we have a lot of leaders in business, you know, who behave in a top-down or command and control way. Um, and we can look at the historical uh, sort of underpinnings of that, you know, post-World War II, the majority of men having served in the military, being used to that style of leadership, um, many of them having PTSD undiagnosed, you know, just a, a real um, shit show for society. I mean, it was, it was tough. Um, and they sort of just continued what they knew and what they had learned kind of makes sense. Um, since then, we have come up with a lot better ways to lead, much better understanding of human psychology, the dynamics of power, all of that. Um, and now we're, we're observing this gap between what we know but maybe haven't learned and some leadership behavior, right? So we'll talk a little bit maybe about some examples of what we're talking about um, and the consequences, but I think the real issue is it continues to go on unchecked, which indicates that the systems in place support the behavior. Um, you talked about how things may have changed after World War II. Um, I would say the real change that happened was when the likes of Deming and Duran got and Schuhart got involved during World War II. They were able to make some changes happen, and that's why we were able to put out record numbers of arms and aircraft and equipment and stuff like that. Uh, I think what had preceded it, if you look at things like the union busting and Taylor's uh, top down, I, I think that command and control really was the norm. That, that's just one thought. Um, I think some of it is built into human nature. Whoever gets to be in charge just feels like they must, they must be in charge for a reason. Some folks are just downright corrupt and they, they love their power. And I'm not gonna try to say this one's corrupt and this one means well, but doesn't know and stuff like that. But there, there's all of those different ingredients at play. So if we start out by looking at command and control management or top-down management, it's a management system where the boss tells people what to do. I know that's a little simplified, but, but that's basically it. And it really flies in the face of the principles and philosophies of lean, including you know, everyone everywhere all the time, right? And it stunts growth, it stunts learning. If you're talking about adding value to your employees, stuff like that, um, do you guys have some examples of top-down management for folks that are listening, some command and control war stories? Oh boy, this is, this is one of those topics of don't get me started. <laughs> um, I've, got a, I've got a dandy story about Top down being way out of whack in a lean environment, in a, an allegedly lean environment. So uh, I was working for a manufacturer, and we happened to have a floor where we were laying up components that were going to be made into composites uh, for aircraft. And they're they're 
very light, they're very strong and, and stuff like that. But the layup process is, is very manual. And uh, I remember visiting one lady out on the production floor and we were talking about something very profound and important. I think it had to do with the uh, football game that was last night on TV. And uh, as we're chatting, suddenly she got up from her workstation and walked across the room and picked up some stuff and came back to her workstation. And I looked at what she was carrying and it was something that the day before had been on her workstation so she could just use it. And I asked, why isn't it, why, why did you have to walk across the room to get it? And her comment, I'm never gonna forget this, was we were five s <laughs> We got five s it's like, oh my God, it sounds like a form of violation. I mean, it's like, oh my God, uh, you know. Oh, the whole that's such a classic example though, right? Because, exactly. you know, somebody uh, read in a book somewhere or something about 5S and, and really didn't grasp, you know, what's going on there. And then just decided, hey, we're going to um, force this on you. Right, we're going to inflict this on you instead of a participative and democratic and empowering approach, right? right. And that's really the, the shift in um, human psychology, you know, the, what we've learned about how people work together in groups and leadership and that sort of thing, as well as how people have grown up, you know, has changed. And generally across the board, especially in the West, uh, people understand the benefit of teamwork and working as a team um, and, and the old ways of, hey, I'm here to punch in, you tell me what to do. If you don't, I'm not gonna work. Um, not only are they inefficient, but people for the most part don't want to work that way anymore, right? Oh, absolutely. I think that, that symptom is a sign of people that were ignored so much that they've just checked out. Their, right. their passion has been basically burnt to a crisp by, by frustration. Yeah, I, you know, I just think whenever you get murdered, that's precisely what happens to you. The cops come out and they 5S you wherever your body was. Here's my talk out line of where you go. That's a, that's a great getting 5S. Yeah, getting 5S, but it's a great example of um, this person who does the work probably knows, you know, what she needs to be successful, like exactly on her desk. And 5S is supposed to capture that if it's done properly. Um, exactly. So I'm just going to go off on a little sidebar here and say that I'm not really comfortable with some of the language that I see, um, you know, online mostly from folks constantly defending lean, right? Well, you know, they're just not doing it right. That's true. But we fall into the no true Scotsman fallacy really quickly if we go down that road. You know, how pure is the religion, right? We've seen this movie play out before, right? Oh, yeah. Instead, we need to be working with each other, knowledge sharing um, on what worked and what didn't work. And uh, sort of evolving together, right? Instead of drawing a circle, hey, you know, I'm in the middle, this guy's in the middle, 
you're outside the circle. And, you know, the more you see bad outcomes, the smaller the circle gets until I'm just, you know, the Lord of lean or whatever, and the, the one true expert. Um, instead, we do mess up, right? And whoever was in charge of that particular 5S project, they messed up. They didn't get it right. And there has really? to be space to say, you're not a bad person. You're not an ignoramus, but you did mess up. And let's talk about how we can get it right. Lean, lean. There's whole careers around. Like that's what we do. Like the fucking the one thing that gets me the worst is the bullshito. Is you're gonna comment on somebody. At least they're trying to come up with. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm trying to post something that's this is five S. This is lean. This is six sigma. This is me trying to make the world a better place. But then to just comment bullshito. You don't even engage in a conversation back and forth. Not a you're wrong, right? This is me because or have you tried this? Just Bushido, gotcha. Yeah, there's a lot of like that, um, you know, just arrogant, you know, almost colonial mindset of like, you know, we have the true orthodoxy and you're an idiot. Um, one thing that's made me really happy uh, online is seeing the number of people from like emerging markets commenting online. And, you know, I'll have some 23 year old engineer from a province in India that I'm not familiar with. And they're posting something about 5S and how they just learned this and they can't wait to put it into place. And I'm over here thinking, this is fantastic. Here's a guy yeah. who's learning, you know, some tools and, and methods to try to make the workplace better. I'm gonna encourage that as much as I can. And then I'll just see a string of comments from self-proclaimed experts just tearing it to ribbons, you know, well, you don't really understand it. Well, you're not smart enough. Well, in Japan, there's only three S's. I don't know where the other two came from, you know, all of this stuff, um, which ironically, it completely contradicts the attitudes of the men who sort of kicked off modern production methods. Read the works of Deming, um, Shingo, uh, Oh no, you know, all of these guys, the first thing that they would tell you is please rip us off and please mess it up and figure out what works for you. Don't follow in my footsteps. Follow what I'm following. Yeah. Your goal is not to follow me. Your goal is to get where I'm trying to get to. Yeah, I think a lot of us, and, and I'm sometimes guilty of it as much as anybody else, we get lost in the purity of the tools when we forget it's not really the tools it's the getting people to use some tools and it's the getting people to use that is really the core and the heart and soul of lean uh, and then later on yeah layer in some tools and yeah if the tool doesn't happen to work for you the way you learned it then uh, use it a different way uh, and i think um you know, we, we, we kind of got the cart way ahead of the horse in terms of uh, starting with the tools and now starting with the people and the culture. Yeah, yeah, it's all tied together, right? If you're starting with the tools, it's necessarily a top-down environment. And if you're tearing people down who are, you know, just learning about how to be lean, that's also a top-down authoritarian, you know, mm -hmm. command and control type of mentality and approach. Right. It's interesting that, um, ironically, we, we think of the military as the most hierarchical and top-down, 
but when people are in like basic training or West Point or stuff like that, when they make a mistake, yes, their mistake is pointed out. Yes, they get an opportunity to do it better. But the, the folks in the command and control there have learned how to do it in such a way that they don't tear down the candidate. They help the candidate move forward. And, and that's why, you know, our service men and service women are, are so awesome at what they do is because in that one environment, they get built up and a chance to grow. Uh, and yet, like you pointed out, in, in industrial and organizational stuff, uh, that, that traditional, you know, slap you across the face seems to be uh, still popular. We forget, we forget to be humans at work. And I just find that so fascinating. Where if I was at home and I dropped a glass and shattered it on the floor, we would just clean it up. If it happens at work, there has to be one asshole come down and go, well, why are you an imperfect human being? Yeah. Like, that is not how life in the world works, but somehow we've created it that way at work. A, puni a punitive environment into it. Even now, and, and I, I would like this not to be captured on the recording. This is just chatting among the three of us. Please hang up and try again. Yeah, so we have um, command and control, top-down approach in business, and it influences how we interface with each other and talk to each other and vice versa. Um, and I, But I think the main takeaway is we all know that there are behaviors that are not tolerated at work. As we've grown as, uh, as a culture and a society, we've decided that things are off limits that maybe weren't in the past, and we've changed. And now... Uh, if you engage in those behaviors, uh, you are disciplined or, you know, change immediately happens because you're, you're doing what is against expectations, right? But when it comes to management, not only are you not punished for top-down command and control type of approach, even though we know it's not the best approach, um, but many times you're rewarded handsomely. Um, yeah, I mean... Uh... Uh, Muhlenberg at Boeing uh, walked away with a monster severance package after he killed 346 people with his approach to designing the 737 Max. I mean, yeah, that's that, that. You know, it's a, that that captures it all in a nutshell. Yeah, it's shocking that you had, you know, an organization that behaved this way and a CEO that um, engaged in top-down com command and control in a way that cost hundreds, right, of lives, and not only scot-free, but was paid tens of millions of dollars to, to just go away, right? Yep. Yep, um, yep. So that's a great example of here's an organization and their structure, their reward and punishment structure and expectations uh, empower this type of behavior. That's that's what they want. That's what they're saying. Please. And ironically, it's an organization that claims that they are quite good at the uh, lead. Almost always, I like all, all the old GE stories. If somebody said they use lean, then that's what tanked them across their whole industry. I'm like, no, there is no tool that's going to tank or make your company regardless. If you want to use your hammer like a toothbrush, then yeah, when you run out of teeth, you can blame the tool, but that's just not how, how life works. I like works. that analogy. Yeah. If you Google 
lean management and lean manufacturing, which I do on a regular basis, right? Okay. The vast majority of the articles will say, you know, lean manufacturing, lean production, lean operations is the principle of identifying the value stream, removing waste, creating value for the customer, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that completely misses the boat. Yeah, I think among the three of us, we recognize those are the outcomes yeah. that happen. That's absolutely correct. Those are the outcomes. They're not even the goal. Um, it's a cultural phenomenon, really, lean is, yeah, that is. results in improvements in all of these areas. When you try to use lean tools, but your philosophy is not aligned, your goals and your outcomes, right? It's like you're a mechanic and you have a nice new shiny tool set, you know? So you're working with shitty tools and the boss comes along and says, here's a brand new snap-on tool kit, the full nine yards, $9,000, have fun. Awesome. The problem is you're still wrenching on a Yugo. So you can use the tools all you want. You're still working on a Yugo, right? You can't change the car you're working on in the same way. And you can take it a step further. If that mechanic is the manager, the manager doesn't know how to fix a car, you're still not going to be able to fix the car. So all of those things. Absolutely. Right? Here. For a political cartoon from decades ago, uh, it shows a, a boxer just being pummeled and, and he's in his corner between rounds and you can see he's all bloodied and bruised. And his manager says, no problem, we got you more gloves. <laughs> right? Yeah, so if I bought Jake a very nice, complete toolkit, a whole garage, right? And asked him to serve my his teeth car, clean. he'll keep his teeth clean with it, right? Yeah, it's a great, uh, I think it's a pretty good analogy. Right? And so the difference is you have companies that are driving a Yugo and trying to use lean tools without addressing the culture and management philosophy is like giving that Yugo mechanic new tools. They're great. The tools work awesome, but you can only fix that car up so much. It's still a Yugo, right? Yeah. On the flip side, if I had a Toyota Camry, I'm pretty sure I can keep it on the road with a pair of vice grips and a, a Phillips screwdriver, right? <laughs> And can we, Got the can, pipe we allow, cleaners. <laughs> can we allow a 15 second break for the people that are follow me on social media to Google what a Yugo is? <laughs> oh, sorry. Yeah. So for anybody that is still a child, Jake, a Yugo was a Yugoslavian car that was sold in the 1980s, which was before you were born. So fair point. Yeah. I mean, if you really want to go deep and far back, uh, look at the Trabant or Trabant or however they pronounce that. <laughs> that was that three-wheeled thing, right? It was an East German car that was uh, like notoriously polluting and inefficient and breakdown. Yeah. There, there used to be a joke that why, why does a Trabant have a, a rear window defroster uh, to keep your hands warm while you're pushing it? <laughs> there, fair enough. Um, so we have uh, command and control, top-down leadership, which may or may not be toxic, but it's not effective. And it may or may not exactly in place, but it's not effective either way, right? Uh, yeah, I think uh, 
Toxicity is, is a separate issue. Uh, ineffectiveness, I think, happens with very well-intended people. Right, right. Well, I'm, I'm curious to, to get a little more thoughts from you on that, because in my experience, when I really sit and think about like the decision-making matrix of an executive, specifically around a decision I hated, um, it is really hard for me to discern, are they absolutely evil or are they absolutely ignorant? Like, those two are highly interchangeable at almost all levels when I look at that decision-making. There's well, also the Mark Twain quote about, uh, it's not what people don't know, it's what they know that ain't so. Yeah, and I think that factors in a little bit of it, too. Yeah. When you look at outcomes, you know, it's it, it's hard to distinguish. I'm, I'm not sure it even matters. Right. However, I have worked with people that were very empathetic and, uh, you know, non hurtful, but their decisions still held the business back and hurt the business Same here. because they were ignorant. Um, I worked for uh, one fella one time. And I'll just say he was a, a good old boy. He was, he was high up in the company and responsible for a lot of stuff. And I was managing a pretty large account, you know, north of, north of $20 million uh, at the time. And this guy didn't really know how to do his job and was kind of trying to micromanage mine. And, you know, it didn't work out. Um, you know, a couple of high earners, including myself, ended up leaving the company um, you know, I don't, I don't know what happened with that uh, particular account, but I do know that we sacrificed our principles and, um, you know, really hurt the business and some people, not on purpose. This is the kind of guy I'd love to go out and have a beer with him probably, uh, but he's hilarious drunk, um, but he just lacked the skill and the education for the job he was hired to do. Um, and you know, there's a difference between making mistakes, which we all do, and being ignorant. You know, consistently making mistakes because you just don't know what you're doing, right? You have doctors that can make mistakes, right? But they're qualified surgeons. If I was trying to do brain surgery on you, I would make a lot more errors, a lot more frequently, a lot more devastatingly, right? We really would only have to make one, but that's okay. Exactly, right? <laughs> which is what this guy did. Um, so that's an, to me, it's an example of. You know, this was not an evil guy, uh, but he did cause a lot of damage. Yeah, I mean, a well-intended person who doesn't know that he doesn't, he, she doesn't know stuff is, is sometimes as dangerous. Right. Um, going back to your comment about medical errors, um, you know, and this is another case of lean and empowerment. I find that a lot of times that a patient gets something unwanted happening to them, um, it's not because the doctor or even the nurse didn't know their medicine. It's because the process wasn't helping and, and allowed something rough to go wrong. And, uh, you know, that circles right back to the whole idea of, you know, if, if caregivers were a little more empowered to make some of the decisions, not necessarily medical decisions, but maybe one or two that are within their skill set, um, maybe, maybe things could be different. Um, there's a lot of decisions that happen in healthcare that really are not strictly the healthcare. It's just the tasks of making the things happen. Yeah. And, that's yeah, and there's some similarity with manufacturing there too. Oh, absolutely. You know, it's really the lawyers 
that are deciding what you're going to do, right? The risk management team, sorry. Um, you know, you have to do it this way. It's standard of care or standard of whatever in manufacturing. Um, and just like the person that got 5S, right? If that happens to you more than, more than a couple of times, you're just going to give up. Why should I try to make it better? They've made it clear to me that, that it's not in alignment with their values. So I'm just going to repeat the task and wait for someone to tell me how to make it better because when I have an idea, um, it gets shot down, right? Yeah, I recall a, a real specific story in, in my previous life where uh, I had the idea, the thought that we would have some regular meetings, breakout groups, and it would lead to an actual article that the site would put out. Mind you, the article, we have 500 people here. So whatever method of getting information to the people, that's the number one. Like we can't change anything in a 24-7 environment with 500 humans in it unless we can con effectively communicate. And we put an article together that had some really great runs and nice insight with myself and one of my previous bosses. And almost immediately, the senior management threw that in the trash and the guy, the senior guy on site said, what if instead we had something similar, but we put it in the bathroom on the door and we called it the Stall Street Journal. So let's remove all variety of actually engaging with these human beings whatsoever, summarize whatever changes you need to make and put it on the bathroom stall. And that was the way we were, oh, this is a great idea, the way we go forward. Now ask me if I ever suggested anything else ever again to that man. Right, fair point. Yeah, don't have an idea. I'm gonna have an idea, right? I'm the ideasman, I am. And not only that, yeah. I'll do the thinking around here. Yeah, but not only that, my idea is really going to be your idea. I'm just going to change the format a little bit and, and uh, pretend that it's my idea. Yeah. Um, now, Jake, this probably doesn't apply to you, but Jonathan, do you remember A Secret Life of Walter Mitty? I do. The bucket, the bucket, the bucket. The bucket, the bucket, the bucket. And he had the boss, right? And I love that boss because he's kind of exactly what we're talking about, right? Yeah. The um, editor of this uh, pulp fiction type of publishing company. And Walter Mitty says something like, I was just thinking about a, a pocket-sized edition, right? And you can see the light bulbs go off in the boss's head, right? And then he's like, that's a stupid idea. Get out of my office, right? And then, you know, a few minutes later in the film, uh, Mitty stumbles into a meeting where the boss is, you know, telling the board of directors, I had this fantastic idea of a pocket-sized edition, you know, for our work. Um, oh, I had this idea years ago, right? Um, that's the toxic behavior of taking credit, right? Instead of giving. Credit, oh, absolutely. Right? But here's where it ties in. A command and control structure, business structure, empowers that toxicity. That kind of toxicity is somewhere around. Command and control is definitely going to allow it to flourish. Right. It's a lot more difficult to get away with some of these bad behaviors if you're in a more egalitarian environment. Yeah. A little bit of a chicken and the egg type of situation there. Isn't there? If you're a toxic leader, are you going to allow an egalitarian environment to come into existence? Uh, if you're 
an egalitarian environment, are you going to bring in somebody who's likely to be a toxic leader? Hopefully not, but you never know. Sure. And how long does it last? And does it take root? Yeah, they are really good observations because there is a high correlation between command and control and toxic behaviors, not just bad outcomes, right? In other words, the command and control structure, the top-down structure, the, the boss is the boss structure, allows toxicity to uh, germinate in a way that a more modern and egalitarian structure doesn't. Oh, it's, yeah, it's, it's definitely a far more fertile soil for that kind of you know, stuff. Yeah. So if you if you are unaware, in my previous professional career, uh, John and I worked together at, at, at a place or two back in the back in the good old days. And one time, completely impromptu. I mean, mind you, this guy is a structured dude. I don't know if you can tell by the way he's combed hair, one forty two, but he's a structured individual. Like he's going to do everything the certain way. And then just uh, almost randomly, he canceled a whole meeting to pull everybody and go. Here's your like the defects that are that were from last week. Like this is just the seven things that were not perfect. What can we do about those today? And that like 20 minutes was more meaningful than any meeting I had ever had with that company in my three years of time there. <laughs> just like, let's actually discuss what's wrong and what we're gonna do about it and take some action here. And then I just, I'm constantly amazed and taken back that that sort of simplicity is just largely missing from companies almost every other company I've ever worked for hasn't even had this Even the ones that, that are, are sincerely trying to make the benefits of lean happen, even there they get, they get sucked into the trap. They, they don't see themselves behaving according to the old school. And I think that's, that's one of the things is, you know, we can deal with the toxic ones sort of kind of, I mean, they're there and you know it's there, but really, I'm almost more scared of the people who have good intentions, but just can't quite see how to get past uh, their, their current behaviors. So those are the ones that are the opportunity space. Uh, and, and I don't have a good answer for how to help them move to another place. And I think that's, that's where there's gold in Empire Hills, if we can ever solve that one. Yeah, so I've been thinking a lot about a book that kind of strikes right across that, but you're absolutely right in like my horizon of knowledge ends there. Like I give an, an allegory from a previous conversation with John and I this week. I was talking about AI. He said, now imagine the day that we turn off the last AI machine and go, AI is useless. Like we're so far beyond that. Now we do this. What is this? What is it that they're talking about? We have no barometer or concept to even construct what that thing is. And I think that same situation applies. If somebody already doesn't know what they don't know, I don't have a solid like construct for how do I get you there? How do I hit that, that hidden gold and go, this is what you need that you're not seeing. I don't know how to get that to the audience. And even if I did know how to get it to the audience, that would be the audience that wouldn't know how to receive it. So <laughs> I don't know how to solve that quandary. But here's a sort of a counterpoint you know, great point. Um, I ask myself, well, how did I learn? You know, I didn't pop out of the womb knowing lean or leadership or good leadership or organizational theory and structure, right? And I think this is a really critical point 
the way that I learned was growth. It took years as an individual. There was some head knowledge. There was some reading books. There was a lot of practice and there was a lot of observation. Oh, that is an effective leader. That one's not. Oh, when they talk about respect for the individual, that's what that means. Wait, you mean everybody else isn't a very aggressive, athletic male that, you know, feels insecure about any weakness or failing like me. And I have to address them differently, right? Um, Self-knowledge as well as um, learning, empathy, you know, towards others. It was a growth process. It's still a growth process. I'm still going, right? And I think that we circumvent this. And I think too many um, lean instruction sources ignore the fact that lean has to grow. Individuals have to grow. You can't read a book and be good at it. You can't do it once and be good at it. You have to observe, you have to practice, you have to read, and you can't speed it up. Um, and, you, and you need mistakes and feedback. Uh, one, of my, one of my favorite learning things, and it certainly applies to my life, is a quote from uh, Will Rogers. Jake, you'll have to look that one up too. Uh, he's, he's from a thousand years before you were around. Um, but seriously, uh, Will Rogers said how uh, good judgment comes from experience. And a lot of that comes from bad judgment. Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely correct. And, and so we have all kinds of research and literature on you know, how much time it takes to be proficient at something. And you famously had, you know, Malcolm Gladwell probably brought it into, you know, the public consciousness, 10,000 hours, right? And it's not just 10,000 hours of repetition. It has to be specific, directed effort, right? We know this, and yet somehow we think that we can grow leaders overnight. We can send them to, well, you took our leadership 101 class, so you're a leader now. You can do lean. PowerPoints up on the wall. Yeah, yeah. You're the best forklift operator. Welcome to leadership. And to me, this is where the heart of lean uh, really intersects with both business growth and the human aspect is effective lean recognizes that the business is growing and people are growing and you meet both the business and the people where they're at accept them, accept it, and then work together to figure out how you can make it better. And that's completely foreign to some of these legacy businesses that say, we're going to have a record quarter this year because my bonus depends on it, right? You can't do both, you have to pick one. Imagine if you were a farmer and you know that you have to plant a field and apply the proper uh, fertilizer for the soil and measure the acidity and control all of that and plant the crops and water the crops and weed the crops and wait all summer and then harvest the crops, right? And you put the care and attention into it. But every three months, the guy that owns the farm comes down to the field and says, this is ridiculous. We're not making the yields that we need Quick, pick a bunch of plants. We've got to realize some some harvesting this quarter, right? Well, how long would that farm last? 
I also like the analogy of the, the, the person with the MBA who thinks that rather than doing it over the course of seven months, you just do it all in the last one month and that'll work too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, a lot of what you said has resonated. You, you covered a lot of ground and it's good stuff. Um, but, but I think ultimately um, what, what we really need to help leaders understand, and I, I know I've kind of banged on this a, a little bit, but it's not so much the tools, it's really the how do you work with your people and once you've got all of your people believing that you mean it and that you know they're going to be solving the problems and, and stuff like that, then you can layer in the tools. Uh, I cannot begin to tell you the number of times uh, I have encountered either through folks that I've been coaching and they're leading a team or myself personally, someone just saying, this is the first time I feel like somebody has listened to me. Yeah. And, you know, that's, that's, it's, it's good that that person finally has that experience, but it's awful that they've been having the other experience all that time up until then. And, you know, we talk about that, you know, supposedly eighth waste of not using people's skills and, and there it is. And, and I think a lot of the organizations that talk about that not using people's skills are, are really guilty of making that non-use happen. And uh, I don't know, I, you know, I, I don't know a one size fits all answer to, to fix that, but I know it has to start with the leaders looking in their own mirror. I'll give you a, a, a spicy story again in my previous professional life where a corporate group was assigned to come out and do a value stream mapping exercise and to come on site, walk through the door, and they are already holding the completed document. <laughs> I'm just thinking to myself, have you totally missed what this would actually do if you were engaging with your folks on, on this exercise? Like to teach these folks how they actually create value and you walk through the door with a completed document and to add insult to injury, it was because the system had, well, we had already charged X or Y customer for this a year ago. And so we should have had this done. And I'm constantly like, you talk about using the tool and completely missing the philosophy. I, I, and I've, I've seen scads of places where value stream maps were developed at you know a management level and uh, virtually nobody who actually does the value uh, was consulted. And that, that's happened in so many organizations. And so that's just one more symptom of what we've been talking about. Well, additionally, we don't, in my experience, we don't train our leaders in the skills that actually matter. So when you talk about listening to people, which is an active skill, there are many people who are listened to, they're not talked to. So if you're a leader and somebody is giving you an idea that is self-centered, that doesn't understand its effect up and down the value chain, that's okay, that's normal. But do you as a leader have the skill to tell that person, I really appreciate that. I empathize with your position. I see where you're coming from. It's not gonna work. Let me walk you through the challenges here. Let's find something that does work for everybody, right? Mm -hmm. 
instead leaders will just uh, skip that part. Right? Well, I listened to the person, I heard what they had to say. Anna's stupid, we're not doing that, right? And they never talk to that person because they just don't know how to let somebody down gently. I mean, there, there is a time when you have to say no, uh, or at least say yes, but. Uh, but the other, the other thing is, when you listen to the person, you need to also, and, and you know, I know I'm preaching to the choir among the three of us, you, you need to really show the person that you've grasped what they've said. They got to do some reflective listening. You got to, you know, really clear be clear that you understand where they're coming from and what their concerns and ideas are. Uh, and, and then if the answer has to be no, you're a little bit more informed. Um, you, you just triggered a thought in my brain. Um, someplace where I've been uh, working, uh, you know, the leaders would go out for regular gembas, but the gembas weren't really to learn from the workforce. The gembas were to correct the workforce for not following instructions. And it's like, okay, here we go again. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think I read it somewhere. Um, I think it was Tai Chi Ono, um, but I adopted it pretty early in my execution, which is you never correct anything uh, on your Gemba walk, right? Um, because that just ingrains in the employee's mind, like you're, daddy out here to spank us because we're messing yeah. up you're, you're a police officer at best at that point you're not there to lead do you think that uh, to your to your earlier point do you think that a lot of that has to do with the leader not actually knowing how they create value in their organization i think there's some of that um i think though there are also times when the leader absolutely knows how his boss thinks he creates value and his boss thinks he creates value by walking around slapping people on the wrist. You know, that's, that's an interesting question is asking the leaders, how do you create value? I, I haven't thought about posing that question to leaders and seeing what they say and seeing what they perceive, but that, that would be an interesting thing to challenge as long as it's not done in an ambush. Uh, but it, it's a whole new question that I hadn't really thought about. So like, I need a little time to noodle on that one. So. Yeah, I just think that that's, my, that's kind of my number one is if the leader is inadvertently making decisions that diverge from best practice and lean continuous improvement, et cetera, is it because they just don't know how they create value? Like that's that's the only time defects occurs when they're outside of the given value stream, right? Like when stuff operates within that, that's how we create value. That's what we want. That's what the business is there for. When it's not, it's because it's not. So I like that's my number one. I would really love to meet just about anyone that in the large previous distribution warehousing environments I come from and just ask that question. How do you how do you think you create value? And I think that would be a great the, question to ask up and down the line. Yeah, yeah, that's a good. Something else you mentioned in terms of you know a leader that's well intended and does something inappropriate goes back to what John was just saying a minute ago about oh no, if you see the leader making a mistake, don't don't whack the leader out in public either. You know, this same same principle. If you see something that's not going on. 
it may be fair to say, hey, I'm observing a gap here. We probably need to deal with this. But yeah, I want to take that offline more than anything else. Yeah, that that's cultural and emotional intelligence and wisdom as well, right? So I was working for a very large manufacturing company um, involved in uh, transportation. So a, a lot of regulation and you know, quality requirements, that sort of thing. And we had a situation where the employees that were putting goods away, receiving them from the supplier uh, in the warehouse were breaking the software system. They weren't doing it right. And it was a, a persistent problem. And an engineer that worked you know, for the, this manufacturer said, you know, why can't we change this behavior? And I started explaining because doing it wrong is more beneficial to the employee. People follow the path of least resistance. Right? Let's analysis. Yeah, let's basically fix the system to where it's easier to do it right. And his response was, we just need to cut off someone's head and put it on a spike. If we do that, everyone else will fall in line. That's a direct quote. Now, in organizational, you know, in management psychology, the name for that approach is called the public hanging. And it's yeah. the idea that if we publicly tear somebody down and shame them or fire them or something like that, everyone else will be too scared to do the same thing, which, as we know, doesn't work because the murder rate in New York City when we had public hangings was something like 20 times higher than it is today when we don't have public hangings. So there's not a good correlation <laughs> between... Uh, the theory there and actual outcomes, right? Um, but this is a vestige of, of just rotten culture and you can't have the two together. They just don't work. You can't be lean and behave that way, period. And this was a company that had a supposed lean operating system. You can't have not lean managers and management and business structure and lean tools and be lean. You know, something you mentioned, you, you talked about the consequences for doing it this way. Um, you've, you've kind of started a light in, in my brain here um, that you, a few years ago, I heard uh, an author by the name of Aubrey Daniels. Uh, he wrote a book called Bringing Out the Best in People. And primarily his whole uh, thing was that, you know, positive reinforcement gets you a lot more than negative reinforcement. Um, but one of the offshoots that came of it, I don't know whether it came from his book or whether I just ran off on a tangent, but I, I came up with this little uh, thing called consequence analysis. And it goes on the basis of these are the consequences, positive or negative, for doing what we think we want people to do. And these are the consequences, positive and negative, for people not doing what we want them to do. And, uh, and it aligns with the concept that whichever concept, consequences people regard as immediate and inevitable are the ones that drive 90% of behavior. So as a practical example, um, 
I don't know for sure whether doing my push-ups is going to make me feel better sometime down the road, but I know that jelly donut's going to taste good right this minute. Uh, and, you know, that immediate and inevitable thing is, is part of it. Um, I could email you folks that worksheet and, and see that there, there may be something there that we can use as a trigger because it turns all of these emotional things, what's going on into here's how it links to the behavior and this is what's giving you the outcomes you want or don't want. And uh, it, it may be a little bit more of a tangible way of looking at uh, helping people look at their behaviors without it necessarily being a, a whack across the side of the head. I'm just absolutely floored that you knew my exact crises this morning. It, it was push-ups or jelly donut, and I'm ashamed of the choice that I made. <laughs> See, what I try to do is I put the jelly donut on the floor, so I have to do the push-up in order to never mind. That's, that's, a, that's not a bad idea. Like, I just recently picked up running here in the past couple of weeks. And it's just, there's a fishing pole and there's a cheeseburger on the end. And that, I will run after that thing full force. Yeah. Well, know. that is a great example of how we might be better off teaching our leaders about psychology and organizational behavior than about a run chart, right? Um, we're, missing some, we're missing some pretty critical parts sometimes um, in our business structure. And it's hard to believe it's been uh, an hour already. So it is time to wrap up. Jonathan, do you have any closing words for our audience and how can we get in touch with you? Well, as far as getting in touch with me, I have uh, a LinkedIn page. I uh, just searched for Jonathan and Dell, but uh, you got to spell the first name J-O-N-A-T-H-O-N, because my mom spelled my name wrong. Uh, but uh, that's that's got the contact information you need if you would like to reach me, and I'd be happy to let you share it on some kind of a graphic at the end of this podcast. Uh, right down below. All right. And uh, that's, you know, I would love to talk with people about this. Yeah, my Rubik's Cube in my brain is already turning. I'm like, that makes so much sense, and I can't think of why. I've never even heard of it in any organization anywhere. Like that, that is the start of how do we address toxic work cultures and uh, what we can actually factually do about it without attacking leaders that don't know, do know. And a fantastic beginning. And Jonathan, it's been a pleasure. <laughs> Jake, it's been good working with you. And John, I enjoyed this very much. Absolutely. Jonathan, thanks for coming on. Everybody, Jonathan Andell is a consultant, expert in Lean Six Sigma. If you need assistance, please reach out to him on LinkedIn. He'll be happy to work with you. Everybody, thanks for joining a quality podcast. Have a great week. Bye. Take care.